We are starting a brand new series today called Broken Men of Faith, and that's maybe a strange title uh, for this series, but we really felt like God was leading us as a church to take a few weeks and just sort of discuss um, what we see happening in sort of today's modern culture with men in the church um, and men's relationship with the church, with the body of Christ, and how it shows up in, in, in the church in terms of expression. Because um, I'll give you some statistics in a minute, but um, we, we, we see, we're starting to see, at least uh, we've been seeing for a while, this disconnect. And I've been noticing it as I've traveled with uh, some of the partnering um, uh, partnering uh, uh, Journey Go partners. When we go to Peru, when we go to Kenya, when we go to West Virginia, when we go to uh, Haiti and, and, and the DR. When we go to some of these partners, um, we're seeing it there as well, um, that there's just sort of this absence of men. Uh, absence of, of men in the faith, in the body of Christ, not really connected well in the church. Um, here's a couple things I pulled just uh, that I had written down. Uh, in terms of, uh, this was a USA Today article that comes off of a survey I'll share with you in a minute. Uh, women tend to outnumber men in attendance in every major Christian denomination. And they're likely 20 to 25% more likely to attend worship at least weekly, right? In terms of the consistency, if you will. Uh, they're, they're 20 to 25% more likely to be consistent on a weekly basis. There was a survey done in 2014. Um, you can look it up, the U.S. Congregational Life Survey. Uh, the survey went on to reveal, just from, a, 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 you know, I'll give you several things from it, but they went on to reveal this idea, like, look, the makeup of most churches, this is in 2014, uh, the average American congregation is roughly about 69% female and 31% male when it's talking about adults, okay? They weren't considering kids in this equation. They were talking about adults engaged in the church. Um, and this is a you know, pretty, pretty strange statistic in terms of you, we don't really understand outside of you know, some of the survey answers why that's the case. You know, what, why, why is that the case that, that it's two to one, or sorry, two out of every three, right, in terms of women to men in the church? And, uh, and it probably doesn't surprise us. I think at Journey, I looked up our statistics just to see, uh, we're about 60-40 in the, the range of that. But that's, that's 2014. I don't even know what this result would be today. Like, I don't know what it would, would it be going down. Uh, where's the trend headed in that? I'm not really sure uh, where that would go. I can tell you this. When you look up the survey and you look at some of the answers, it's, it's one of the things that popped out to me. Um, is this idea of like, well, what's, not what's wrong, but what do you, what is, seems to be the reasons that people have this view of masculinity in the church, and what is the view, what's the primary view in terms of the church, again, two, to, two, uh, two women for every one man, what's the, the view of masculinity in the church? And here were the top four that I pulled off. Um, they see it as broken, and just give you a brief, uh, you know, what that means, uh, that it's not functioning healthy, healthy, like there's not healthy functioning men, there's dysfunctional uh, masculinity, but they don't see it as functional and healthy in terms of, of men. But then the second thing, really close, was just how badly it's needed, okay? So get that. There's a survey about the disconnect, if you will, of, of masculinity in the church, and yet um, the number two answer is how needed the church feels like it's needed for men and masculinity in the church. 
But then you go to number three and it talks about how oppressive it is. And again, I don't know your experience, but this has been a big deal for a lot of churches and denominations. There's a whole bunch of junk going on right now in the SBC and the Southern Baptist Church and just some things going on that is really tragic, but there seems to be this, this view, if you will, of this oppressive leadership, that men in leadership, especially when men get to leadership, it's, a, it's an oppressive thing. It's not healthy. And dangerous. And we know this word from, from our cultural stuff about toxic masculinity and dangerous from the standpoint of this is not going to take the church in the direction it needs to go. Now, this is really sad, okay? This is really quite a sad state of affairs when it comes to how people view masculinity in the church as primarily the same way they view it outside of the church. Broken, you know, oppressive, uh, toxic, dysfunctional, not working, uh, you know, uh, but yet the church might be the only area in our society that still sees it as needed, Okay? The church might be the only area, the only organization. I mean, the rest of the world is pretty happy with who runs the world. Girls, right? You know what I'm saying? Like that's the rest of the world is pretty okay with, uh, let's just, let's just try a new plan because it's not working with men. And, and the problem is that, that that's not what we really see in scripture. And so I want you to hear this. This is not a, a series about equality or anything like that. It's just a series we feel driven by, you know what? Men, for some reason, are pulling away from the church. Men, for some reason, are disengaging. Their relationship with the church is unhealthy. And everyone seems to feel like there's an unhealthiness in the church with men. But yet they also see the need. That, that true masculinity in terms of how it's defined biblically is needed in the church. And we wanted to take just a few weeks to talk about kind of why that's the case. And hopefully this is, I mean, obviously some of the stuff we're going to learn, everybody can apply what we're going to be going through, but I'm going to specifically give some applications and challenges to uh, men that are here and watching online. But this is part of our, our story, right? And I want to read this verse. This is the verse that will lead me over the next few weeks in terms of God's sort of view versus how the world views things when it comes to masculinity. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Few of you met the standards, so to speak, of what the world, uh, in the world's eyes, but instead God chose the things of this world that this world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. God chose the things that, you know, that the world considers foolish to shame those who think they're wise, and then he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Instead, oh wait, yeah, God chose things despised by the world. Things counted to nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Now, when I read this verse, I just, something just encourages me, encourages me that, that even when this, this culture, this world is struggling to define masculinity, struggling to define sort of where, where, where do they want men to, to, to sit, if you will, or to be placed in our society. I look at God's word and I look at how it encourages us. And I look at this encouraging passage that, you know what? Uh, God's view of things is not the same as the world. You know, God's order of things, economy is not the same. 
And as a matter of fact, it's not the things that are wise and powerful in the world's eyes. It's not the, 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 the one that crosses the T's and dots the I's in the world's eyes that are, that are going to make the difference. It's sometimes those things that the world considers foolish or that the world considers powerless or that the world considers nothing at all that God uses and transforms and works through to accomplish his will, to bring him glory. And so for me, this is just a big part of driving us towards this series uh, that I believe one of the ways that we remind ourselves that what God is looking for and how God does this, you know, uses the weak to, to, to overcome the powerful, is, is just to read the word of God. Like, for example, like for some reason... Men disassociate themselves from the church because they believe that their brokenness keeps them out of becoming the man of God or being the man of God that God wants to be and use in their life. And yet, for some reason, only, the only answer I have is they must not be reading the Bible. Because all we have in Scripture are stories after stories after examples after examples of completely messed up, broken of people that God does transformative work in and uses them despite their brokenness. And so today we're going to look at a broken man of faith that I believe there's tons to, to, to glean from, tons to learn from, and that's going to be the story of, of Gideon, okay? The story of Gideon. Now this covers a couple of chapters, uh, three chapters in uh, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. I'll give you the brief uh, synopsis, okay? Brief synopsis. Uh, all through the book of Judges is a time when God's people um, would kind of go on this roller coaster, if you will. Um, maybe a carousel is a better word for it. Like they, they were on this roller coaster where they were on the highs of, of living in God's will and obeying God and experiencing amazing things. And then they would stop doing the things that God called them to do. And they would go down into a valley of oppression and fear. And, and, uh, and, and, and God would give them over to their enemies. And then, and then all of a sudden a new judge or a champion would arise. And they would go back to following God. And I'm just telling you, judges is just this constant roller coaster, if you will, of, of, of the Israelites never seeming, seeming to learn their lesson, right? Never seeming to get it. That's also another good you know, thing for us. Um, so what we see, this is not the first story, but we get into Judges, into one, several of the stories, really, and we see again that God's people have been handed over to the Midianites, they've been handed over to their enemies. Um, God's people are starving. Um, when they go on at the beginning of verse 6 to talk about how bad it is that the enemy, two or three enemies in the, around them would come in and take their, their animals and destroy their crops, and, um, and, and they were struggling. I mean, the Israelites were simply struggling to survive. And we meet Gideon in this moment. And I, I, what I've decided to do today is just ask questions. That's one of the things I like to do. Um, and I feel like best in order to pull out some of the stuff from the beginning of Gideon's story, we can't even cover all of Gideon's story. That's why I put it up there for you. I want you to go and read it on your own. But just from the beginning of his story, we see so much that I believe the, if we just wrestle with these questions, they would really challenge us and hopefully challenge the men in our church in terms of how you are functioning, how you are living in your relationship with God. So here's where we meet Gideon. This happens in Judges 6, um, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great, oh, the great tree in uh, Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abezer. Gideon is the son of Joash. He was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from Midianites. Again, this, is, this was a needed thing. He's just, trying to, he's just trying to work through the wheat and thresh the wheat so he can have food for his family. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Here's Gideon's response. Sir, <laughs> I love that. He doesn't equate, immediately know it's an angel. Huh? Sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? We don't respond like that to God, do we, at all, right? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say that the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? Now the Lord's abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. I don't know what you're talking about, right? He sort of skips over the first part of his says, but like, the Lord is with us. I don't know what you're talking about. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, I'm sending you. I want you to go because I'm sending you. I love the fact that the angel of the Lord ignores his question, ignores his, 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 <laughs> ignores his response. I want you to go because I'm sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh. And I'm the least of my entire family. This is one of those just sort of self-deprecating moments of, who am I that you're calling me? Like, in terms of how pecking orders go of, of, again, how the world sees strength, how the world sees success, how the world would, uh, would, 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 would run this. I am the, my clan is the least, my family is the least, and I am the least in my family. But the Lord said to him, well, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Okay? You're, you're, gonna destroy, you're going to flip the script, if you will, of the entire nation of Israel, or for them, and it's going to be just like as if you were fighting one man. That's the way this is going to go. Now, I want to stop just for a minute and ask the first question, and I'll be honest. I could probably spend all morning on this question, so don't let me, okay? Don't let me spend the whole time here. But this is a big one for men. Again, this is the challenge, a specific challenge for men. And, and the question that I want to ask, everybody can answer this. The question I want to ask is, what's in your hand? Okay? What's in your hand? See, I picture, I picture Gideon in the wine press. This is my uh, threshing machine here. I don't know what it is to thrush wheat, just to let you know. Um, but a rake is just as good, okay? So I picture him in fear, down in a wine press, which is, you know, kind of in the earth, you know, you couldn't see him, and he's down here just kind of threshing and getting the wheat done and just hopefully getting the work finished so that he can have food for, for his family. You know, what's in his hand is what he, he feels like he needs to survive, Okay? What's in his hand in that moment is, is what he knows is necessary, but also what he can control, right? What he sees as the most important thing right now, I just got to have food. We just got to make it to the next day. Like, like sometimes that's all that's in our hand. And so, so I see Gideon like this. The problem is when the angel shows up, he sees Gideon 
and, and responds to him, and he doesn't see the, the, the rake or whatever in his hand. He says, mighty warrior. He says, mighty warrior. I see something else in you than what you see in you. And that's one of the things that I just wanted to ask as we kind of start the story, because oftentimes, especially, and I'm just saying this, especially for men, but it's true for women too, what's in our hands, sort of what we're clinging to, what we're grasping onto, are the things that we value most. They're the things that we feel like we can control. What we're clinging to and what we're grasping onto is what's considered success to us. And maybe that's your career. You know, maybe that's your financial security. Maybe that's your, your, uh, your, your physical body. Maybe that's, your, you know, how you're your health. Maybe it's your family. I mean, just, just start thinking about what is in your hand. It's going to be the thing that you value the absolute most. And it's going to be what you have defined as success for your life even if it's just to get you to the next day and to the next season. You're going to have that, and you're going to be clenched to it, and you're going to be holding it. And there is a chance, a pretty high chance, to be honest, that when God sees you and addresses you, he sees you differently. You know? This is my favorite part. I can't talk about Gideon without getting my sword out, right? Because this is how... The Lord saw Gideon. This is how the Lord saw Gideon. Like, and this is some, we're going to talk about identity here in a couple weeks, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, but to be honest, I think there's something about it for men. I'm just going to say it for, for most men. I mean, you want to be up here. That's all I'm saying, you know? And if I had another sword, there would be volunteers, all right? That's just the way it works, all right? And, and, and the sword doesn't necessarily, again, just represent sort of warfare, if you will. Because again, I think most people will be like, just get me out of my job, give me a sword, point me in the right direction, okay? I know there's some men that just feel that way. Corbett, we'll take the sword in a minute, all right? The reality is, is that this is how, this is how God saw Gideon, but this is what we want God to see in us. That what we are holding to and what we are clinging to and what we hold and value, the most value, and what we deem as success is the same thing that God sees in our hands. And to be honest, there's a reason the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the armor of God to the church in Ephesus, he talks about the sword. And the sword is the word of God. The sword is the word of God. And so I believe when he sees us, and he sees us not holding and grasping and clinging to what we feel like makes us successful, what we feel like holds value in this world, but I think when he sees us clinging and holding tightly to his word, his truth, his, the way he sees us, that we begin to have that same view of ourselves that God has of us. Gideon gets there. I just want you to know that. Gideon eventually gets there, but he doesn't. He's not there at the beginning. So Gideon has some things to do, and I'm not going to continue on with his story. Again, we're just looking at the, the beginning of his story. But God tells him to do some things. He goes on to say this. That night, because he told him what to do, he said, I want you to go into your village, and I want you to do this. And so here's what he just says. 
Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. I want you to pull down your father's idol, sorry, altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. The Asherah pole and the altar of Baal would have been a kind of a symbol. It was a polytheistic, uh, help me, polytheistic society. And Baal represented sort of the masculine God. Asherah kind of was the feminine, if you would, or the feminine goddess. And it was a it was a kind of a moon and stars kind of thing, like sun and moon. It was kind of like a male and female version of the head gods, if you will, and goddesses. So this is why there's oftentimes references to Baal and Asherah. So there was a pole and an altar, and that's just just wanted to give you some context. So it's not like two different things. It was kind of one thing, but it's in that polytheistic idea. Then I want you to, I want you to tear it down. I want you to build an altar to the Lord your God here on the hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully, sacrifice the bull as burnt offering on the altar, use as fuel the wood of the shear pole that you cut down. So Gideon took uh, 10 of his servants and he did exactly the Lord commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid. He was afraid of the other members of his father's household and people of the town. And that's actually pretty smart because they did find out. Then the next morning, they find out what happened. Everybody's upset. You know, just imagine if they did something that you considered sacred. Everybody's upset. Everybody's mad. The family's mad. The, the, the town people are mad. And they find out Gideon did it. Why? Because Gideon took 10 witnesses with him. He was dumb. That's why. Right? He knew Gideon did it. <laughs> Even though he did it at night and he was afraid. But here his father stands up for him. His father actually says this. His father says, look, if Baal is truly a god, then let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. You know, this is his dad's, dad's sort of chief in the tribe and his clan, and his dad defends Gideon, even though he may not have agreed with him. He just said, look, if, Baal, if Baal's upset about this, let Baal deal with it, right? Let, let him destroy the one. And from then on, Gideon was actually called Jeroboam, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. They literally changed his name. They, they, they changed how they viewed Gideon because of his actions in that moment to build an altar for God and to tear down the, the false idol, to tear down the altar uh, of, of Baal and the Asherah pole. And so the next question I have that comes from a story is just what comes, who comes first? Who comes first in our lives? Well, this is around our priorities and, and, our, and a word that we don't use it often, but it's renown. It's our priorities in terms of how we're living our lives, what comes first in our lives, and, and what do people know us by? Okay, not just what you declare that's, that you say is a priority, but how would other people define you as a priority? Like, well, how would they say your, your priorities are? That's a big deal. And so, you know, I'll just give you a quick example, okay? And don't judge me as a dad, because I'll judge you, okay? So just don't, don't judge me too harshly. But it was kind of instilled in my wife and I early on. We got married early on, and we had well, almost 10 years before Parker was born. And so before our three kids entered the scene, uh, we had a very strong relationship. And we had been told really early on by many, many really wise people just how important the marriage relationship was and just how much we needed to cling to one another before we had kids and, and to have a healthy understanding of that because we were going to be stewards of children for a period of time and then they were going to be gone, right? This is the goal of parenthood, by the way, that they're going to be gone. And, 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 and really, 
that this relationship remains the priority in our life. So I've, I mean, you know, I've, I've done it several times. I don't listen to, I don't do it intentionally. Like I don't pick on my children, but when it comes up naturally, you know, about my kids and do I love them and, you know, and how important they are, I help them understand very clearly. They, I love them so much and they are so important, but I do not love them nearly as much as I love their mother. You know, and they have to understand that. Like, if you worry about my kids' self esteem, please don't, okay? They carry the Dawson confidence all the way. <laughs> but I help them understand pretty quickly that if there was a choice, if there was a pecking match, if there, your mom's coming first. You know, your, mo- your mom is always going to be first in terms of this family. That's just the way it is. And sometimes, you know, they're older now. They can give me flack and kind of talk back to me. But I'm just like, it's just the way it is. I love you, buddy. I love you, sweetheart. It's just, I love you more than anybody else will ever love you. But I love your mom. It's not even in comparison how much I love your mother. Does that make sense? And I hope that my kids, if they were to ask, if you were to go ask them today, who does your dad love the most in your family? They might say Charlie. But... <laughs> More than likely, they're going to say mom. And guys, I want them to know that. Does that make sense? Because that's my priority. That's how I value most. Now, in the big picture of my life, God, I, 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 want, I want God to be the priority in my life and in our marriage and in our family. But the question still remains, is that how people are going to know me? Would people that don't, that I don't, you know, you were to ask someone else, what does Matt value? In terms of his renown, what is, what is it that Matt puts first in his life? I sure hope they don't say the church. Because the church is nothing in comparison to my walk with God. And I, I, I want to just kind of wrestle with that question with you. Not what do you state is your priority. How would your spouse say your priority is? What would friends and family say about you in terms of how you live your life? What is your renown in terms of the priorities of your life? Do they know you to be the cheapest person alive, right? Penny pincher, frugal, stressed about finances, stressed about financial security, or do they know you as the most generous person they've ever met because of how God's blessed you and how you want to bless others? Do they know you as someone who's simply filled with worry and anxiety and fear for their life? Or do they see someone who lives by faith, who obeys no matter what the cost, who doesn't concern themselves with how the world views them? Do you see, are they going to see you as someone who the kids are the highest priority? (laughs) The, The tail wags the dog, so to speak. Or are the kids part of a healthy family structure that the family itself has the priority of God first? That we're on mission for the things of God as a part of our family. I don't say any of this to guilt you. I just, when you start wrestling with what's in your hand, how God sees you, what are you after? There's going to come a follow-up question that's like, well, no, not to what do you say you prioritize first, what would others say about you? Let me ask you a question. Would others dare change your name? Because of the stand that you've taken for God? This is a great one from Paul to the church in Galatia. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? 
If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay? Paul wants you to understand there is, there's, no, there's no way that both of these things coexist. That I'm trying to please people and be a full servant of Christ. There's no way I can make those two things happen. I've sometimes told people, you know, this is just because of the nature of our culture. Maybe the best thing that could happen to you is for someone to out you at work. You know, somebody's going to out you. Can you believe John is a Christian? That John believes that stuff in the Bible? That John himself is like, believes that the, you know, these things are right and these things are wrong, completely opposite of what our culture says? Can you, do you know that? And most of us, that would really worry us because we've got a little too much people pleasing in us. We've got a little bit too much, again, success is how we please man versus our renown of how dedicated we are and how much we want to please God. So who comes first? What's in your hand, but who comes first? Not just what you say, but how would others say that about you? Gideon has now called um, all the people of Israel together. He's called all the warriors. He's told them, let's go. Uh, God's, uh, I've spoken to God. This is happening. And all the warriors show up, like, like a ton of warriors show up. And then that night, Gideon says to God, look, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you've promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece out on the threshing floor tonight. And if the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, read those four words out loud. Yeah. Then I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. Guys, and that's just what happened. And Gideon got up early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece out and he wrung out a whole bowl full of water. I don't know how long it's been since you wrung anything out, but to get a bowl full of water, that's a lot. Okay, that's a lot of dew. Gideon then said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time I'm going to put the fleece and let it remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. Now, I hope you understand that um, there's something very unique about this, but I want to, I want to take it from the, from the question that I want you to ask. The question was, or the, 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 the response, if you will, or the way in which this happens is, Gideon is going to be doing what God told him to do, but he just said, you know what, I just would like to know, you know, I, I would just like to know. So the question is, how do you know? Okay, that's the question I want you to just be thinking about for a minute. How do you know? How do you know? And, and it really is, has to do with our faith and our obedience, how do you know anything? How do you know God is going to walk with you? How do you know that God is going to stand by you? How do you know that God is going to intervene? How do you know that the decision you're making is the one that God wants you to make? That's a big deal. And I want everyone to hear this because I think men struggle with this the most, okay? Especially in, if you're raised in the same culture I was. There's this really weird church culture that came out of a need to control people that said you're not allowed to question God, you're not allowed to question God's authority, and if you have any doubts or issues, you've got a faith problem, okay? That's, that's kind of this culture that I was raised in in terms of, uh, in terms of age. 
And I'll be honest with you, that's not in scripture. Okay. The men of God, the broken men of faith all had issues, all struggled. They all doubted. They all questioned. Okay. Just, just, just hear that. Okay. They all did this and God still used them. God still showed up. God still did and honored those requests. Now, I'll be honest with you, if I ha- I've had a few fleece moments in my life, and God knew, God knew that I was only doing it because I was afraid. You know, I, w- I was like, God, if you really want me to do this, um, could you make that glow in the dark? Could you make that over there jump up and down by itself? Could you um, part the sea in front of me? Then I'll do it. And did God respond to that? Sure he did. He didn't do any of the things I asked him to do. (laughs) Right? Why? Because there is a difference, and I just want you to hear this, there's a difference between testing God in obedience or testing him for obedience. Okay, God tells us not to test who he is because we have the word of God in front of us and we know who he is. He is who he said he is. So we're not supposed to test God in who he is. But you know what? The New Testament, Paul says, I want you to test the spirits and I want you to know which one is God. I want you to know when God is is directing you. Why? Because Paul knew that there was a battle going inside of you. Paul knows how many voices are in my head, right? There's a lot of voices up there. God's not the only one saying things to me. And, and, And there's an idea of like, sometimes I have to sit. Sometimes I need to process. Sometimes I have to ask questions. Sometimes I need to have long conversations with God over several days to make sure that what I'm feeling and what I'm hearing and what I'm, what I'm prompted to is absolutely from him. But I'm doing all of that in obedience, meaning that I'm going to obey no matter what. Does everybody understand that? I'm going to obey and God knows my heart. He knows when I want to test him to see if I'm going to obey or if I'm testing him because I am going to obey. And I want, I want to know that he's with me. I want to, this is really Gideon's heart. I just want to know that you're with me. I'm going to attack. I'm going to do what you told me to do. I want to know that you're with me. I want to know you're the one that does it. And so this is testing in obedience, not for obedience. And that's how you can know. I'm just telling you, that's how you can know when you begin to make decisions in your life and you're trying to live this life for God and bring glory to him. You can know whether, you know, you'll know whether you're bringing, trying to bring glory to yourself. You'll know in those conversations, in those moments. That's why the testing, I think, is good. Here's another great verse that Paul shares with his, uh, his disciple, Timothy. I want you to pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. I want you to fight the good fight for true faith. You've got you to gotta put effort into this. You're going to have questions. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have concerns. You're gonna, you're, it's the, the, the temptation of our you know, Christian culture is going to be make sure and test, you know, do those fleecing things to make sure before you do it. But the reality is, is that everything in Scripture tells us that we're supposed to respond in obedience, and it's okay to ask God and clarify with God and, and, and continue to seek God and ask questions for him, even in the doubts that you have that says, God, I'm going to follow you, but here's the deal. You know, I'm going to quit this job because you told me to. And I, and I don't want to have any assumptions of what, what this means for me. You know, because I, didn't, I don't have a job to fill it. You didn't give me that answer to that prayer yet. 
I'm telling you, I've had story after story with people that this is true of them. And the reality is, is that every time we obey, sometimes, again, go in the strength you have simply means when he told Gideon, go in the strength you have means that we have to take action first because God's going to show up in the midst of our step. But we want him to show up before the step. We want him to show up before we go. We want him to show up with an ironclad contract that everything's going to work out all rosy for us in the end. That's just not how it works. So I, I really love this part of Gideon's story because it's such a part that I want to just live into. I'm like, God, I want to, I want to be okay with questioning you because I know God's okay with it, but I don't ever want to do it like in my sinful nature as to whether or not I'm going to follow him. I always want to do it with a, with a leaning into God, I'm taking the step. I'm doing what you, I'm going to do what you tell me to do no matter what it is. I hope you're certainly okay with me asking these questions. I hope you're okay with me asking you to, to continue to reveal yourself in this process. And the answer is, he is okay. And he will do it because he does want you to know. Here's the last one. And again, we can't do his whole story, but this is just another big one I have to talk about. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites are going to boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Then he goes on to say, therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, you can leave the mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home. I don't know if you heard that right. 22,000, two thirds went home, leaving 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord then told Gideon, there's still too many. Oh, Lord. I can't even be Gideon at this moment. I'm just already freaking out. Bring them down to the spring and I'll test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. And when Gideon looked at his warriors, he took them down to the, to the water and told them, hey, divide them into two groups. In one group, put those who cup the water with their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And the other group, put all those who kneel down uh, to drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank the mouths, with their mouths in the stream. Then the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and I will give you victory over the Midianites. Send the others home. Okay. 9,700 of you. Gideon collected the provisions, ran horns and other things from the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept 300 men with him. <clears throat> I don't want to be Gideon anymore. This is the question here. It's a question we're always going to wrestle with. Is it your strength or is it his strength? How are you going to continue to live your life? Yours or his? And this boils down to just simply an issue of trust. boils down to whether you're going you're gonna to put all your faith in your wisdom because you got this, because you know how it needs to happen, or are you going to put faith in his wisdom? Okay? You can't go back to a verse like we read in, Cor in Corinthians and say God chooses to use the things that the world seems like it's nothing at all to, to, to confound the world. To, to overthrow the world. 
You know what nothing at all looks like? 300 people against three nations who have come together to crush the Israelites. That looks like nothing at all. And yet, God says, yeah, I'm going to, this is, this is it. See, it's going to have to be super, super clear that it's my strength at work and not yours. And here's the worst part about this. Let me just tell you, I struggle with this more than any of you probably ever will. So I just want you to hear I'm preaching to me. I'm not just preaching to you. The problem is, is that sometimes God requires us to release and let go of the things that we are putting our trust in before he will show up with his strength to do it. And boy, does that read, does that change everything? from revealing to me what's in my hand, what am, I, what am I really valuing and putting first in my life, the priorities that I'm living by, the, the question of whether I'm feeling all that confident and I really know because I've, I'm, I'm, I'm really walking with the Spirit and obedience and faith, when all of a sudden God's saying, I want you to let go of that. I want you to let go of that financial security. I want you to let go of that career path. I want you to let go of, you know, how you think your family needs to turn out. I need you to let go of that. I need you to let go of the things that you're trusting in and your strength to accomplish everything you want to accomplish. Because I have a job for you. I have a, a path for you. And I'm going to do some things for you. But guys, it's going to be in his strength that it gets done. It's going to be in his power. And, and I don't, listen, I don't put these, oh, I'm going to read this next one. Sorry, I'm going to read one more verse. This is Jesus. When he called them together to help them understand, that this is really important for anybody in leadership. You know that the rulers of this world, they lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. The NIV says, not so with you. Whoever wants to be the leader among you is going to be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to everyone else. And I'm just telling you, the choice, the choice to release power, to release authority, to release all the things that, that this world is telling us makes us strong, powerful, and wise, to release those things in order to trust in his strength. Many, many people won't understand. But the church should. Your fellow Christians should. Other believers in the faith and your circles should. Because this is what we're called to wrestle with. So put these four questions up. Go ahead and go to the four questions. Oh, I'm sorry, I, did, I missed the last verse, but Jesus came to serve others. That's, that was the, give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, these four questions are, I'm not, I'm not even telling you they're easy. <laughs> they're not easy. And we're just pulling them from the beginning of this incredible story of a broken man that God used. God used 300, him and 300 men to crush three invading armies to turn everything around for the Israelites for a season of time as they begin to follow God. And wasn't perfect at any point. 
But he wrestled with these questions. And when he wrestled with these questions, he moved in the direction that God wanted him to do. He got rid of that thing that was in his hand. He began to see himself the way God sees him as the mighty warrior. I'm going to be with you, go in the strength you have. He tore down the altars and the idols. He tore down the stuff that, that everybody else said, well, this is just what, who we worship and this is how it works. And he says, no, that's not what it's supposed to be. And they changed his name, his renown of how he would be known for the rest of his life as the one who honored God first. And even when he didn't know, he continued to pursue obedience and he leaned in and he had to do what you and I, I'll just be honest, what you and I would struggle to even come close to doing, which is to give away and release 98%, 99% of what we feel like our strength comes from and where we put our trust so that he can show up in his power and we can live life through him. I hope it's challenging to you. We're going to discuss over the next few weeks a couple other things that I, we just know that men struggle with in relationship to the church, but just take these questions and just begin to work through them. I really do believe that there's transformative work in these questions that can lead us into really fulfilling the life, really, be, really beginning to see us the way God sees us in a very healthy way. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Your word challenges us. God, I want to see myself as you see me. I want to cling to the sword, the, the, the word of God in my life forever. And as I wrestle through these questions and as everyone begins to just think through these questions, bring them up to us during the week this week. Let us just not be satisfied with a quick, simple answer, but begin to really reflect about what our lives look like. We want the renown of the men in this church for people that don't belong here and that see us from the outside in to go, those men honor God first in their life. They cling to the word of God. They work through his strength, not their own. And they, they, even with questions and doubts, even when they're struggling with, with knowing for sure, they move forward in obedience God, may that be true of every single one of us. In your precious name we pray this, Jesus. Amen.